and this grandfatherly man. Sit down. I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave in the morning. I'm going to the country. Good. What are you gonna do when you get to the country? Well, I mean, uh, I planted peppers last week. Now I'm gonna plant tomatoes. His name is Carmine Galanti, the late Carmine Galanti, who the papers said was the godfather of the mafia. Okay. You think that had an influence on the federal judge when he held that you were right and the parole commission was wrong? I think so. I think so. He thinks a farmer ought to be able to see, right? I think so. I mean, it's very well known that I, that's what I do. I don't have to believe a person is innocent, like we keep talking about Galante or Tony Salerno or something like that. I don't have to believe in their innocence in a particular case. I have to believe one of two things. Number one, that that person is innocent in the particular case, or that there are some extraordinary circumstances which make the prosecution unfair. Well, hey, all you wiretappers out there, welcome back to the studio of Gangland Wire. We've got a, a special show. If you listen to that little promo, that was... Carmine Galante talking with his lawyer, Roy Cohen, right after Roy did a deal that got him out of jail. He was talking about how, what he was going to go do. I've got a uh, an Australian lawyer, Tony Torek, from down under from Sydney, Australia, who is an expert on mob lawyers. And we're going to do a series of shows. And today we're going to do one about Roy Cohen. Roy Cohen is not a household name when it comes to, to mob lawyers, but he was a mob lawyer as well as a lawyer for Donald Trump and, and a lot of other people in New York City and a character all in his own. So I, I just thought he was an interesting guy. And that's going to be our first one. And then we're going to do some of the other famous mob lawyers over the next several months. So just sit back and listen to my friend Tony Tark from Down Under, and I will have a link to his website if you're in Sydney and you need a lawyer. Thanks a lot for helping me out, Tony. We're just going to cut right into this, guys. He's one of the most, he's a toxic combination of brilliant <laughs> and evil. Uh, he's probably <laughs> one of the most interesting and complex and amoral characters I've come across, I at have... least in the legal world. Um, really? I have to yes. agree. When it first started coming down, how he was Donald Trump's big advisor, I'm thinking, he's still alive? He's still around doing? Man, I mean, he goes from Joe McCarthy to Donald Trump then stops off That's at the right. mafia in between. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> yes. He died in 1986 from AIDS Yeah, at the age of 59 years old. He was actually born in Manhattan in 1927, um, he was the son of a New York judge and a doting mother. He was quite an excellent student. He earned a law degree from Columbia before reaching 21 and uh, shortly thereafter in 1948, obviously with his family's help because his judge, his father was a judge after all, he became a federal prosecutor in Manhattan. Um, as you would know, uh, becoming a prosecutor is a familiar career trajectory for a right. successful criminal lawyer because you know how they operate on the other side of the aisle what you do is you get out of law school and you need that trial experience and you you can get it with and still get a pay a regular paycheck by joining the prosecutor's office so you you're going That's to trial right. sometimes you're going to trial you know you may have two trials a week small trials and so you really get good experience in the prosecutor's office yeah i, I didn't take that path i went straight into private practice from law school <laughs> okay yeah <laughs> as assistant u.s uh attorney, he helped uh, convict the atomic spies uh, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg of espionage. And his conduct during that trial was quite unethical. Um, it's alleged that he unilaterally contacted the judge 
to influence the proceedings on a number of occasions. That's a big no-no in the legal world. And he suborned false testimony from one of the witnesses. So in his early 20s, we can see that he's already developing or has developed into a shyster lawyer, not averse to dirty tricks in the dark arts. He played a role, uh, a major role in uh, Senator McCarthy's anti-communist uh, drive in the 1950s, also known as the Red, Sca the Red Scare. It was basically a witch hunt to read, uh, weed out supposed communist sympathisers from the uh, US government. A lot of these witch hunts had no basis and they ended up ruining a lot of lives. Now, this is the interesting part. In the course of that campaign, ironically, Cohn, who was a closet homosexual, also targeted several closet homosexuals employed by the US government on the grounds that they were vulnerable to blackmail mm -hmm. by Soviet intelligence due to their sexuality. Let's uh, let's explain to the folks that, that you may not know, some people may not be old enough to even know there. Joseph McCarthy was a state, United States senator from Wisconsin, I believe. And, and yes. he chaired the House Committee on Un-American Activities, which was That's looking correct. at communist, in the government and in other yes. positions of influence in the United States, correct? That's correct, yes. He started pulling movie stars in and government officials, and, yes. and he made some, uh, McCarthy made some claims like there's like several hundred communists in the State Department and some real outrageous claims that was all about getting publicity rather A than- A lot of it with no basis. A lot of it had no basis. And uh, I think he was just a publicity hound and he did that for the attention and just to make himself known. That's my personal opinion. Uh, but a lot of it was just unsubstantiated and it just ruined lives. By his side, whispering in his ear like Iago from Shakespeare. Right. So, that, that's, that was his position with the committee. He wasn't a politician. He was a lawyer hired by Joseph McCarthy and the committee. Yes. And then he That's advised right. them on how to conduct themselves and, and maybe did some depositions and found out what people might say so they would know what to expect and, and told him That's, how to conduct this. That's correct. Uh, they were both publicly disgraced on national television uh, during the Army McCarthy hearings uh, when they were called out by famous Boston attorney Joseph Welch. Then in 1954, the Senate voted to censure McCarthy as people got fed up with his demagoguery and antics. Now, Cohn resigned and he returned to New York and he went into private practice. Um, a lot of people wrote him off as yesterday's man and because of his, his association with McCarthy um, and the Red Scare. And people were right to think that. Uh, not many people could survive such a fall from grace. Yet, he somehow managed to reinvent himself in New York as a hired legal gun and attracted an impressive A-list clientele that included New York Yankees baseball club owner George Steinbrenner, the owners of Studio 54, um, even the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of New York. And clients engaged him because he was unscrupulous and willing to do anything to win. He famously said, I don't write polite letters, I like to fight. If we don't make a reasonable work out of everything, I fight all the way. You fight all the way, but I leave everything in your hands because you know what the article says, you never mess with Roy Cohn. As long as, <laughs> as, long as a few people believe. He delivered results for his clients. Uh, so the people that acted for him didn't care about his past association with McCarthy, as unsavory as it was, 
all the rumors about his sexuality, which were quite widespread. It goes to show that when it comes down to it, even in the 1950s and 60s, self-interest superseded all, all other considerations. How did he get in with the mob? Now, I know, for example, he must, I think he was a lawyer for Donald Trump's father, Fred Trump, at first, and then okay. became Trump's advisor, maybe not really his legal counsel going to court, but his advisor during those early 60s and 70s days when Donald Trump first started going into construction business in, in New York. Is that correct? Yes, it's a little bit earlier than that. See, he was building up his profile in New York and he came to the attention of the mob. Um, he was actually quite ambitious in his non-legal business endeavors too. He was involved in a lot of diverse businesses, banks, insurance companies, parking lots, apparently even porn theatres, uh, and his unconventional business practices led him led to many investigations and federal indictments for fraud, bribery, and conspiracy. And he boastfully avoided paying taxes, and he kept no assets in his name to keep himself what we lawyers call judgment-proof. Even his own law firm wasn't in his name. Now, on three separate occasions, the Freds indicted him, and all three times he won acquittals. This undoubtedly bolstered his ego and sense of invincibility, and it also attracted attention. By the 1970s, he had become a fixture at the infamous cocaine-fueled Manhattan discotheque called Studio 54, which we've all heard of, and he openly started hobnobbing with socialites, politicians, businessmen, and mafia figures. In fact, he represented the owners of Studio 54 when they were charged with tax evasion and obstruction of justice, and when one of the owners was charged with drug possession. Um, as his profile grew... It was only a matter of time before he attracted the attention of the mob in New York, which had a stranglehold on the city at the time. Now, what was important, and I think this is what attracted the attention of the mob, he created a network of compliant district attorneys, law enforcement officials, prosecutors and judges. And one notable example of how he utilised these networks was in 1973 when he represented a then obscure Gambino associate called John Gotti. When he was charged with the murder of an Irish-American mobster, James McBratney, in a Staten Island bar, the killing occurred in a packed bar and two eyewitnesses implicated Gotti and two other men. Yet somehow Cohn managed to convince the Staten Island district attorney to accept the plea of guilty for attempted manslaughter in which Gotti barely served two years. That's an amazing result in these circumstances. That is. And plus, add on top of that, that was actually a hit that he was doing for Carlo Gambino. That guy that guy had kidnapped one of Gambino's relatives, and then the guy had died. I can't remember his name, but he died during the kidnapping. So this was really a mob hit that Gotti That's got right. two years. That Roy Cohen made a deal and got him two years. Is that correct? That's correct. That's wow. exactly right. <laughs> I think it was Carlo Gambino's nephew. Yeah, I think and, you're right. Uh, I think, yeah, and I think that's how uh, John Gotti got his stripes because of that hit. Yeah, I, I think yeah. it was made because of that. He he did that. That's he took right. his time and just pled. Yes. You know, he took the deal and pled guilty and got on out of there. So yeah, I think he made that's his bones right. and and got made because of that. John Gotti probably wouldn't have gone on to achieve such prominence if he received a. Um, a longer sentence for the McBratney murder. Yeah. He would have rotted in prison for the next decade instead of becoming a rising star in the Gambino family. We probably wouldn't have heard of him thereafter. Probably he wouldn't have definitely wouldn't have, wouldn't have received such prominence. Now, in that same year in 1973, this is where uh, 
his relationship with Donald Trump uh, started. Uh, the federal government sued a real estate firm owned by the Trump family uh, for bias against black people trying to rent apartments. And his advice to Trump was to fight them tooth and nail um, counter suit. So Cohn filed a $100 million countersuit against the government. Now, then in 1975, after two years of legal battles and mounting legal fees, the government finally agreed to settle. Now, Trump was impressed with Cohn for this, and he constantly kept his counsel for the next decade uh, until towards the end of Cohn's life, he, Trump pretty much cut ties with him. Now, the interesting part is this kind of this story kind of ties into the mob because it would later be suggested that Cohn acted as a go-between for Trump and another infamous client, Fat Tony Salerno, the boss of the Genovese crime family. Salerno ran a very lucrative numbers racket in New York, and that made tens of millions of dollars every year. And Cohn represented Fat Tony when he was charged with illegal gambling and tax evasion in 1978 for which he was convicted and served six months. Fat Tony Salerno and other organised crime figures in New York controlled the ready-mix concrete business in New York, and everyone in construction in New York knew it at the time. Now, it's said that Cohn brokered a deal between his two clients, between Fat Tony Salerno and the Genevieve family, and Trump, which facilitated the construction of Trump Tower in the early 1980s, using ready-fix concrete. It all kind of ties in in this big yeah. web. He will uh, uh, represent Fat Tony during the commission trial later on also. So he was like a lifelong attorney for Fat Tony Salerno. He was actually, the, the commission trial that you're talking about took place in 1985 and 1986. Right. By this stage, he was very ill with AIDS. Uh, and he had to pull out, I think. And okay. by the time the verdict in the commission trial came out, which I think was early 1987 or maybe late 1986, he was dead. Okay. So he, he definitely, started out representing him. I found an old clip where he was on the courthouse right. steps talking about that, Tony. They, you know, go and do things like posting bonds and all that. If I had to make a guess, I'd say uh, should be out in about uh, 30 minutes. Castellano was the first. He set $4 million bail. Uh, I represent Tony Salerno. The government asked for uh, $4 million bail. The judge cut it in half. And uh, he should make that and be out shortly. But shortly can be a half hour. In 1978, he represented Carmine Galante, the acting boss of the Bonanno family. Now, by all accounts, Galante was a very nasty piece of work. As you probably know and our viewers know, he was... Um, he helped set up a sophisticated heroin trafficking right. operation known as the French Connection and was implicated in many murders. Um, he was the type of mobster who was feared by other mobsters. Now, Galante's parole was revoked by the United States Parole Commission uh, because he was allegedly associating with other mobsters and he was sent back to prison where he had previously served 12 years for narcotics trafficking uh, However, Cohn managed to convince a judge that the government had illegally revoked Galante's parole and he was immediately released, which is another impressive feat. And this grandfatherly man. Sit down. I'm going I'm to leave in the morning. I'm going to the country. Good. What are you going to do when you get to the country? Well, I mean, uh, I plant 
peppers last week, now I'm going to plant tomatoes. His name is Carmine Galanti, the late Carmine Galanti, who the papers said was the godfather of the mafia. You think that had an influence on the federal judge when he held that you were right and the parole commission was wrong? I think so, I think so. He thinks a farmer ought to be able to see, right? I think so. I mean, it's very well known that that's what I do. Now, in hindsight, Galante would have been better off staying in prison because a few months later, as we're all aware, he was shot dead while drinking a glass of wine in a Brooklyn restaurant. Uh, you recall the infamous photo of uh, the cigar Galante <laughs> splayed out the, in the restaurant patio with the uh, cigars still in his mouth. He'd been jockeying for power in New York, unwisely stepped on a few toes at the commission, and they decided to get rid of him. Carmine had big dreams. He wanted to become the boss of all bosses in New York. And he, like I said, he stepped on a few toes and uh, he started jockeying for power, started getting very aggressive. They The commission decided to get rid of him. Roy Cohn actually attended his wake and he made a short speech where he said, uh, you know, it's not up to me to judge him. I only know what I read in the newspapers. It's up to the Almighty to judge him and something along those lines. At one time or another, he represented all five of the New York uh, organized crime families. And, yeah, like you said before, had he not gotten sick, he would have played a big role in the commission trial of uh, 1985 and 1986. Um, Sometime in the late 1970s and early 1980s, he contracted HIV, but he kept it secret. Like I said, he was a closet homosexual. Mm -hmm. To anyone who, it was obvious he was sick, but to anyone who asked, he would say that he was suffering from liver cancer. What's interesting also is um, he was actually equally ambitious in his uh, in his non his non legal career. His unconventional business practices caused him to problems with the authorities all the time. In 1986, a while he was battling AIDS, a five judge panel disbarred him for stealing $100,000 from a client. Apparently, this client lent him $100,000, but he turned around and said, issued an invoice and said that it was payment for legal fees. And the disciplinary committee of the Bar Association found otherwise. And he also um, tried to get a client to amend his will and uh, make him the beneficiary. And he actually dressed up a, as a medical professional or a nurse and walked into the hospital he tried to get this client to scribble his uh, initial on this men's will or codicil, I think it was. And there were all sorts of other reprehensible practices which caused him to be disbarred, uh, disbarred ultimately in 1986. But he actually died a very interesting character. Um, if I was on trial or if I was indicted in the 1970s, I probably would have retained him. <laughs> he sounded like a very effective attorney. You would have held your nose while you retained him. <laughs> yeah, he probably didn't come cheap, but I mean, he, he got the job done, that's for sure. Yeah, another um, interesting thing, I was reading up a little bit about him, and and he was he was the master. He had all kinds of publicity connections, reporters and, and gossip columnists, and, and he had a, yes. a master of publicity in New York, which that's that's what it's all about. So he'd be trying a case in the papers before it ever got into the courtroom, and, and he was he was great at that. I think that's probably one thing Trump liked about him was because Trump's a publicity hound. He can really get generate a lot of publicity for you. 
Yeah, he, he had an amazing network. Uh, and I don't know if it was because of his high profile, because he got involved in the McCarthy hearings. He was obviously a very good uh, lawyer and he he mixed in a lot of social, uh, a lot of those elite circles in New York. He was, a, like I said, he was a fixture at Studio 54 and he hobnobbed with a lot of different type of people. And he actually was good friends with Ronald. Reagan as well, and he helped him with his campaign in nineteen in nineteen eighty. He was uh, very well connected, and I think in New York, it's all about the favor bank. Yeah, and it's all about your image. It's all about your connections, and um, he used that completely. And uh, I think that's what made him so handy to all his clients. Interesting. Well, he was. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I never really thought of him as a mob lawyer until you mentioned that we were talking about these different mob lawyers. I I always think of Bruce Cutler or Oscar Goodman as the mob lawyers, but but he was. He, he represented several yes. of those guys. Yeah, he was. Uh, yeah, but but he's more known for his uh, activities in the nineteen fifties as opposed to later on in the nineteen seventies. Yeah. yeah, obviously. And he said it himself. He said that um, everything he did in the 1950s under the McCarthy would ultimately overshadow any achievements that he that he had later in life. <laughs> so he was, yeah, he was. I mean, he acted for all five mafia families at one time or another, and he got them results. Mm, but yeah, he's not known as a mob lawyer, but right. he was a quintessential mob lawyer huh. to a large extent. There have been many examples of lawyers crossing the line or flying too close to the sun. Um, yeah, there you uh, Robert Simone in Philadelphia. It got to the point where he it was argued that he was proposed to become a made member of the mob, hmm. the Philadelphia yeah. mob. I'm not real familiar with that uh, story. You know about that. Let's let's do that next time or one of the, one of these times soon. Yes. Let, let's do yes. Robert Simone. And, yes, uh, and there's also Frank Regano who got too close as well. You're, their enemies become your enemies when you get too close you don't draw that line one that new york lawyer who managed to keep himself who managed to he did a very good he did a very good job at insulating himself was james la rosa he died a few years ago he, was, uh, say, he that, very, say that name again james, james la rosa from new york he did a very good job at he represented a lot of organized crime figures over okay. a few decades and he was never ever no one ever questioned his integrity or no one ever suggested he was a part of the mob he managed to keep himself very uh, insulated from all that keep it all professional but a lot of others yeah even bruce cutler at one point there was a suggestion that he was getting too close to Gotti. i yeah. think that played a role in him being disqualified in from Gotti's trial in 1992. It, it did. It did. They they said that yes. he couldn't represent him because something they'd heard on the wiretaps that, that made it look like he was more a part of it might end up becoming a defendant himself. So the, yes. the judge disqualified him on that one. And Oscar Goodman was very good at drawing the line as well. He was. I, I read his, his life story, his book, and and he was he was a master at drawing the line. I've got some tapes of him talking to a Kansas City mob guy, and he's good. He never steps over that line. He really keeps them fended off, even though they're trying to and draw they tried, him in. Yeah. They tried on a number of occasions to get to to basically uh, bring him down. You know, they had him wiretapped on one stage by a purported client and various other things. Yeah, but they never. They, they tried to run a the bureau tried to run a guy in on him. They they got That's right, yes. an informant to take an undercover agent in, and then the agent started. Like acting like, well, hey, you know, I got some really good deal on some jewelry here and <laughs> trying to, to suck him in. So <laughs> that's right. Yes. That didn't it, work. He's very smart, Oscar. He, he was. Actually, he was. 
I visited his restaurant when I was in Las Vegas a few mm-hmm. years ago, but uh, to see if I could meet him, and uh, I couldn't find, I couldn't catch him there. <laughs> I say he shows up out there every once in a while. He's uh, he's quite the man about town in Las Vegas. So yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> you could have caught him there, and he probably he was a pretty gracious guy. He, he probably would have chatted you up for a little bit. Tony, yes. this has been great. Let's let's do we'll do some more of these. All right. Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely. know you've got done some research on some of these other lawyers, and and yes. I I think it's you know such a big part of it. So we'll we'll probably do try to do what we do like one a month or something, and and uh, no worries. Quick little absolutely. show on on the mob lawyers. I know I had uh, Oscar Goodman uh, cross examine me once. I was scared to death. I walked in that courtroom. It was a trial. And all I did was I got a call from the FBI and they said, go to this Pete's restaurant, go to, go to Marty's barbecue was owned by a guy named Pete Tamborello. They said, go down there and just sit and see if Tony Wright, Anthony Savella comes in and what does he do? I go, I sit down, order me some barbecue, took another guy with me and sat there and you know, shortly thereafter, Tony Wright walks in and sits down. Then some kid, like a 20, probably 25 or 30 year old kid, but a young guy and, and was obviously not trying to be a gangster, look like a gangster. And he comes in and he sits down and, and they talk. So you just kind of watch him. We eat and we watch him. Pretty soon, Tony takes out a checkbook and writes out a check and tears it out and hands it to the kid. Of course, I couldn't really see it was a check. I could only see that he wrote something and something that looked like a checkbook and tore it out and handed it to the kid. We left. So, you know, I got hold of the FBI and said, hey, here's what I saw. And they said, OK. And about a year later, they, they're doing this trial on this Tony Ripe Savella. He was he was doing gray market drugs. They were buying drugs and, and claiming that it was for a nursing home and you get a big discount. For, for a nursing home. And then he had a guy that had some individually owned pharmacies out in Nevada, and he was su- basically supplying those pharmacies out there for retail sale. And and mm-hmm. he wasn't storing them properly. Some of them were supposed to be stored properly. He just put them in a little warehouse. Then they uh, got a truck and they'd carry him out to Las Vegas. And so I, they knew that he was going to write a check for that kid. You know, they had Tony Ripe's check from that kid's bank account. So they had everything. They just needed me to say that I saw him what I saw him do. So they said, and Oscar Goodman's his lawyer. I thought, oh man, I walk in that courtroom, his old fashioned courthouse, had real high ceilings. It was like 1930s courthouse. Courtroom was filled with friends and relatives and associates of the Savella family. <laughs> and they all are like staring daggers at me as I walk up to the front. You know, they asked me these questions, which they'd already grilled me the night before. They asked me the questions of what did I see? You know, Oscar Goodman gets up and he's like, well, officer, did, you know, did you see this? Well, officer, where were you sitting? Well, officer, how far away were you from Mr. Savella? Well, officer, now, could you see exactly what was on that piece of paper? No. Well, officer, what did you see him tear out? I don't know. You know, it was, it was like he tore something out and handed it to the guy. Okay. No, no further questions. Like, oh, okay. I'm done. I'm out of here. <laughs> I, I figured he'd try to browbeat me and, and try to make me look stupid, but you know, he didn't. He just asked me the, the the questions that you would ask. Yeah, he's quite lethal in his cross-examinations, from what I've read. He's, yeah, he, uh, he covered he covered the bases, you know. He made sure that I was not making this up. Of course, like I said, the US attorney had sat me down the day before and browbeat me. I mean, they were like almost yelling about this and that and trying to catch me up in, in what I was saying. <laughs> Uh, so I would, they had me prepared for Mr. Goodman. 
All right. Well, we'll we'll do a story on him, a lot more about his career. I'll uh, I'll make some notes on that. And I know you've you've looked up a lot of that stuff. Uh, One of the best cases of Oscar Goodman, before we go here, is a Jimmy Chagra case. Because I've been researching that whole Jimmy Chagra story. And he got that that dude uh, not guilty for paying the man who killed Judge Woods down in Texas, a federal judge. And there's yes. and they had several witnesses that you know said he did it, but he got him yes. not guilty. It was wild. Yes, that was impressive. That uh, that was, was a phenomenal success. That was a phenomenal victory. It was. Yeah. Yes. Well, all right, Tony. I really appreciate you coming on here, and uh, we'll you. do some more of these. Some of these other mob lawyers. No and, worries. And uh, a tip of the hat to all you guys down under, because guys, if you didn't Thank notice, you. Tony is an Australian, <laughs> and and he's. Coming from down under. So I know I got a lot of Aussie fans. And so they'll be really excited to hear your voice on the podcast. Thank you. I'll I'll let you know what some of their feedback is. It'll be interesting. Well, guys, remember, I like to ride a motorcycle. So if you are out driving around, make sure you watch out for motorcycles. And if you have a problem with PTSD and you've been in the service or you know somebody that has a problem with PTSD and if they've been in the service, go to the VA website and get that hotline number. And you got a lot of help there. Tony, thanks a lot for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you.